0: Thinking Deeply About Primary Education, the podcast that makes time and space to really think about pedagogy, teaching and learning, professional development, anything of interest at time poor but enthusiasm-rich teachers. This week, I'm joined by Christopher Such. Hello again. Neil Almond. Hello. And Elliot Morgan. Hello. And together, we're going to explore writing stimuli. Now, this episode came at the request of Tom Brassington on the Tanape Discord, a link to which can be found in the episode description. But first, Chris, what are you reading for?
1: Hey, what you reading for? Over the past week or so, I have been reading a book called Spelling for Life by Lynn Stone. It's been a really fascinating read, particularly because it has challenged some of my preconceptions about certain aspects of teaching spelling. Um, as you uh, regular listeners might remember from a previous episode when we talked about spelling, I made it clear that I'm not a fan of the phrase Spelling rules, though I recognize that it's kind of semantics between what is a spelling rule, what is a spelling pattern, etc. Lynn Stone clearly has no such disagreements with the term. What I found really fascinating about the book is that it doesn't agree with a lot of the things that I think are a really good idea for teaching spelling. And yet I came away from it at the end of the book thinking, well, this is systematic, it's thoughtful. I don't really have any doubts that if a school put it in place and did it to a high standard that children's spelling and uh, reading outcomes would be would benefit from it so yeah I love books like that I love books which challenge the way that I think and perhaps make me think again about certain issues I can't say it entirely changed my mind but I highly recommend it to anyone when it comes to the teaching of spelling
2: Neil what you reading for so this week uh kind of a an anticipated bit of uh, not necessarily research as such despite the fact it coming out in uh, reading research quarterly but more of a a rebuke to a, a previous article that was um, written it's called the primacy of science in communicating advances in the science of reading um the, reason why I've been reading this is that previously a another article by Duke and Cartwright entitled The Science of Reading Progress Communicating Advances Beyond the Simple View of Reading uh, that was released a couple of months ago which really asked some pertinent questions I think about the uh, the efficacy of the simple view of reading but the article itself which I know Chris has mentioned previously I believe also uh, throws up a lot of questions and so this article is um, Wesley Hoover and William Tunmer's um, response to some of the uh, thoughts and criticisms that Duke and Cartwright um, put together regarding their model regarding the simple view of reading which made for yeah, some interesting,
3: uh, interesting reading. Elliot what are you reading for? Uh, so I've got two books on the go at the moment, one sort of educational or related to education and one sort of just a personal interest. Um, so the education book is um, Organized Ideas, Thinking by Hand, Extending the Mind by Oliver Caviglioli and uh, David Goodwin. The central point I've sort of taken from it so far is that we are sort of these experts have these internal schemas but we need to make these visual for uh, for the learner in the classroom. Um, so I'm really enjoying that. Um, it's also got a great contribution in there from someone called Elliot Morgan. Check him out. Um, <laughs> but, um, no. I've also got another book that um, I was recommended by Atal in the uh, Discord. Discord link in the episode description, listeners. It's called Atomic Habits by James Clear. I think it's in a lot of um, sort of top 10 book lists and stuff at the moment. Um, I- I've only read a small chunk of it, but I really like what I've read so far. It's talking about that we shouldn't think about goals but instead think about systems because winners and losers have the same goals but it's the, the systems that differentiate a winner and loser and that we often convince ourselves that we have to have uh, massive action in order to achieve massive massive success um, but the author sort of goes against that saying it's more about the marginal gains and that if you just improved one percent every day how much of an impact that would have over a year and so on um, and a, a popular example, which I think I've seen cited elsewhere that they cite in the book is about um, Team GB cycling. They hired this guy in called Dave Brailsford, I think his name was. And when they'd hired him, they'd never won uh, Tour de France in over 100 years. And they'd only won a single gold in the Olympics. Um, And he just brought in all these sort of marginal changes. He rubbed alcohol on the tyres for better grip. He got the cyclists to wear um, shorts that heated their muscles to keep them more prepped. Um, he, they tested which pillows gave the individual riders best sleep, all these sorts of things um, and then when it came around to Beijing they won 60% of the medals and then um, Wiggins and Froome went on to win the Tour de France in like five times in six years so yeah, really interesting book so far so thanks to Atul on the uh, Discord for the recommendation. Kieran, what are you reading for?
0: Nice, um, yeah I've started one from the Discord as well, Stephen Lockyer recommended chipping Down Heath, uh, making it stick Made to stick. And it's one of those books that, even though it's not written for teachers, has a lot of stuff that's applicable to teachers. I'm, I'm only a little bit in. I really want to use my bit of what you're reading for to reference a conversation that we all had sort of online last week. And it was the fact that even though we talk about MathSpot all the time, we haven't actually ever realized that, um, you have, that Johnny has that Patreon patreon option um on his site and so we signed up immediately and i want to I sort of draw people's attention to it you know because the amount of work that he's done recently and over a long period of time i reckon if if we can give him you know a cup of coffee a, a month it's absolutely more than worth it and i think in, in, in support of a really good uh, cause so then the focus of this episode is writing stimuli chris what do we mean by writing stimuli
1: uh, a writing stimulus is anything that is used in the classroom by the teacher to inspire children to write. It can be something that generates a short piece of writing or a particular um, a, a piece of text with a particular audience and purpose in mind. But the key idea is it's something that gives a sense of purpose to a piece of writing. And then I'm going to throw this one to you, Neil. How do you do it at your school?
2: Certainly... Going forward, uh, a key aspect of our writing stimuli for this new English program that we're running at our school is through the use of uh, GIFs, or GIFs, depending on how one is meant to actually pronounce the the word itself. Uh, The reason GIFs. (laughs) Definitely GIFs?
1: (laughs) No, they're GIFs, you're right. But
2: we all
3: say GIFs. Hang on, is this a phonics episode?
2: So we're using, particularly when we just want children to practice at the sentence level of writing. So we don't want to get them to do ex- massive pieces of extended writing too quickly. We'll use um, we'll use gifs or gifs predominantly because they visualise an action. Obviously, if you want to write a sentence, you need to have your 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 subject and at the level that we kind of teach what a sentence is we do say that you know it requires a verb an action verb and so we've found that using gifts is an effective way to do that over something like a picture purely because um, the gifts that we use will have a subject and then performing some sort of action so it helps uh, it helps students frame what those sentences are going to be and then when we want them to do some uh, longer pieces of writing perhaps over uh, a paragraph or two, we might use a, a longer animation from YouTube or a, a visuals a picture, perhaps because they get older and they can start thinking about what those, what those actions are going to be themselves. So that's kind of what we're going for. So something quite new. I've certainly never don't know of teachers who are using uh, GIFs. I'm sure there are plenty out there, but it's something that, yeah, looking forward to trying and seeing how it impacts on student writing, whether it will reduce that load that cognitive load for students where they don't have to think too much about what they have to write and they can focus on the the technical mastery of writing that sentence where are you sourcing them from so we source them from all in you know just uh, internet browsers or if there are particularly good ones and i think it's what's the website Jiff- jiffy or giffy.com i think something on there again they don't need to link to texts or anything like that that we're doing it can just be any mundane action that people are doing um, is all fine so if people come across particularly good ones they can save them in a centralized folder name them and then people can use them as they see fit
1: what interested me and in what you said there Neil was the fact that you're looking at writing stimuli on a sentence level as well as on a say paragraph or text level i think often when i've thought about writing stimuli in the past it's been how can i support the writing of a given text over the next you know two or three weeks and actually thinking about it on a finer grain level when we're say looking at these lessons where we are just looking at say sentence construction i think that's um Yeah, that's a valuable way of looking at things. That being the case, it probably makes sense for me to kind of talk about the other side of things when it comes to what we do at the schools that I've worked in. I'd rather talk about a few than just my most recent school. Over the years, I would say that I've used and I've seen used all sorts of writing stimuli from stories themselves. That's a really common one to poetry letters so texts effectively to generate what we want um children to write about but i've also seen videos used to a really high standard sometimes entire films pictures can be a great jumping off point events trips sometimes getting children to write certain things about certain trips we have been to i remember a particular local zoo that we visited where There was one enclosure that we thought wasn't really fit for purpose and we hadn't intended to write about that, but it produced some of the best writing I've seen from a young class. And so sometimes having that bit of flexibility there, but yeah, texts, videos, pictures, events, trips, all of these things can lead to great bits of writing, particularly if we've got that sense of purpose in mind, but all of those, again, going back to your point, Neil, relate to the, the kind of larger piece of writing that we might want children to do. I really like the idea that you brought up there about thinking about fine grain
3: stimuli for writing. V- videos in particular stuck out for me because um, I've also seen them used particularly well and, and um, have been particularly fond of using them myself. And I think where we're so intent on um, a high quality of writing, we focus on using high quality text as a stimulus. But the issue I have there is that when you have a child who's perhaps not particularly confident in reading, they have to then read this text and then write from, the, write from that text. And often you sort of lose lose them along along that journey. And I found that with those children, when you've used a, a short film or video of some sort, that you, they seem to be particularly infused and more likely to produce um, better writing. And just uh, on the note of videos as well, obviously
2: with the advent of technology, things like... Um augmented reality where you can actually have dinosaurs in the school field if that's what you want to do or aliens landing or whatever it is that you want that particular stimulus to be I think the more you can bring it back to what the children know so having that happen in the classroom or on the school field I think just makes it that little bit more real for our students as well which all or helps with them kind of immerse within this kind of uh, scenario that you're building up yeah my wife
0: had the you know the tiger who came to tea that was their text in the summer term I think and they had an augmented tiger in the classroom I think at one point maybe it was this term yeah so I, I've definitely seen people use that but it's been a while since uh, since I taught writing
1: in, in a lot of cases the temptation understandably is to use fiction you know to use effectively some kind of story be it a Three or four minute one, or a, something, a, an extract from something longer, and I, I, for example, have used little bits from the film Wall-E in the past that have been quite successful. But don't be—I would say—some of the best writing that I've seen done has been in response to news clips, particularly where there's an element of um, humour in there. There was a a, 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 vid, a news clip which involved a jewellery store robbery that had been foiled by a, um, an old woman with a little handbag and she just went up and started thwacking these guys um, who are like on, on a motorcycle and they, they turn and run and it's a delightful thing and the children adored it to such an extent that I got the feeling that I could have built a whole year's worth of writing out of, out of it but again, when I look back across my career when I think about videos I've used Ones that have just a little bit of underlying humour have been really valuable. But anything that strikes at a particular emotion has worked. So something that's got an underlying bit of humour or there's something a bit, you know, gives a bit of a sense of curiosity or there's um, something that might make children, in, in in a gentle sense, there's a sense of fear behind it if it's something that builds tension in a video. Something that kind of strikes at an emotion in some way always tends to spark writing, I find, in a way that something that doesn't have that connection doesn't.
0: Now I'm also going to think in terms of all the schools I've been at because it's been well, like I said, it's been a while since I taught writing. And one of the things that I always used to do was sort of the, you know, the talk for writing model where you would really focus on your fiction. Because I felt that's where I would get the the highest quality sort of composition. And you know, utilising the fact that there are only so many stories, and um, Neil, I'm definitely going to come to you about you know the the text that outlines those stories. But if you think about, like you said, about removing the sort of cognitive load, if you give the pupils a story and the structure, and then it's all about how do we create the narrative, you know, through the language that we choose. I always find that quite useful. And what's the name of that book, Neil, that you uh, that you always recommend?
2: Yeah, that's um, The Seven Basic Plots by um, Christopher Booker. If you haven't read it, it's, it's an epic. It's about 736 pages long. Um, but effectively what he does is he goes through every well-known story known to man and effectively says that any story ever written can be comprised into these seven basic plots, which involve things like the quest a comedy, uh, a tragedy, uh, a rags-to-riches kind of story, Um, rebirth, um, voyage and return, overcoming the monster. There's certainly kind of elements where they can overlap, but as a a framework to reconsider about what you want your writing to be like, I think if you were mapping your writing over uh, the six, seven years that you'd be doing that, I think using that as a framework is probably a, a good idea for your Fiction, because it, again, it can just, as you mentioned, Kieran, take away some of that. Like if they know that they're writing a comedy or a rags to riches, and they know what that was when they did it in this is in year six, they know what that looked like in year five. They know what that looked like when they did it maybe in like year three, etc. Um, and from a progression standpoint, your English lead can decide well, at year three, this is what a rags to riches story will look like. Then in year five, this is what it will look like. Then in year six, so it's a nice framework that you can really put a clear kind of progression to.
0: What I really like about frameworks, and I don't know, this might be a really out there uh, sort of analogy, but in, in Beethoven's, I think it's the 25th Concerto, he knows his audience are expecting a certain framework. And then he absolutely smashes the pieces. And I think when you get a child who's really writing beyond where you would expect them to be, it's when they can take a framework and then they'd be creative using that knowledge to really surprise the, the reader and make them feel something that maybe, they, you, you, know, you wouldn't necessarily expect a child of what max 11 years old to think. So I'm always thinking along those lines in terms of here are the, here are the structures that we expect if we're gonna be creative with our writing we can take those and we can bend them, or break them completely. But with the skill that allows us, I don't know, to really push the the boundaries. And I think one of the last questions we want to ask was about text types. But I think now is probably the time to ask it because, like I say, I'm I'm very keen that I think we can get the best writing from fiction. Text types aren't in the national curriculum. You know, there's nothing in the statutory lays out We have to cover these text types. But as far as I can tell, they're still quite popular. Do we know why?
3: I think I have an inkling as to why from a conversation with a colleague from a couple of years ago um, who had been teaching a lot longer than me. And they said that and I'm not sure I haven't actually checked if this is true or not, but in the previous curriculum that it did emphasise genre. So I think it's uh, perhaps a sort of hangover from the previous curriculum where teachers were used to teaching to genre and they sort of just carried on teaching because it's familiar to them. Yeah, I think I, I think I even remember being at secondary school, or primary school and writing specifically in genre like for an assessment or something. So um, I don't know if anyone who's been teaching longer than me can, Chris or Kieran, can uh, confirm that. There's
1: definitely an extent to which v- genre and text types were a key feature of the National Literacy Strategies. When you delve back into those, though, it doesn't necessarily say newspaper article, diary, this sort of thing, it talks about, you know, recount and instruction. So it is a little more general than um, it has come to be interpreted. So I think while the National Literacy Strategies um, had an impact there, I think the key thing is SATs. This might be a bit before your time, but when I first started teaching, writing SATs were in place, and there were a lot of marks to be had by clearly specifying that you knew what type of text you were supposed to be writing to the extent that i remember possibly one of the strongest writers i've ever taught not doing particularly well because i noted and i noticed out of the corner of my eye that they were supposed to be writing something like a newspaper article and they'd written a diary entry and it was a cracking bit of writing but i thought Oh, goodness, they're not going to have been able to get a lot of the marks by signposting that they know what this text type is. So it led to some really bad practice, like ensuring that every child knew if they were writing a diary, it began with Dear Diary. Not because that's the only way to start a diary, but because it's memorable. Equally with things like teaching children how to write headlines and this sort of thing. So effectively, I think it came back to assessment. I think that's one of the key reasons why it was so deeply embedded I think there's also something to be said about the ease of teaching text types when you come to plan a unit of writing trying to get children to. understand punctuation better phrases, how to appreciate differences and nuances in vocabulary, that is a massive job that takes years you can get quite a sense of satisfaction by saying, here is a newspaper article, let's use our coloring pencils to recognize the headline and the picture with a caption. And while it isn't particularly useful, I remember planning units of writing that did this stuff and thinking that's a lesson where I will feel successful. And I know that that shouldn't have been a driving impetus for my planning and for including it over and over again, but it was frankly. It was some an area of teaching where I knew I could be successful, so I, I, I carried on doing it for a while, despite it not necessarily being particularly useful.
2: Just to add to that, yeah, I you totally agree, Chris. And this Maybe this is just me, but somehow my final pieces of writing would always be done on the Friday so that I could start a brand new piece of work on the Monday. Um, whether or not that was the right amount of time needed for it was irrelevant, but again... In my practice but I always know and realize that that weekend between finishing a piece of writing and between starting a piece of writing was a lot, a lot longer because I knew Monday's lesson is going to be yeah I'm just going to find a newspaper article and then do exactly as you say we're just going to get the uh, the highlighters out or the colored uh, crayons and just yeah let, let's find these particular features within this text type but it's almost like a rite of passage I think that most teachers have to go through before they kind of maybe realise maybe we can do something more with the amount of time that we'd give children if we didn't do that. Obviously
1: I think there is value in children experiencing newspaper articles and particular examples of diary entries or journals and all this sort of thing and recognising this stuff but yeah the extent to which we emphasise it in teaching and then guide children to writing these particular stereotyped versions of texts that are entirely in many ways out of date is not necessarily the best practice.
3: I, I agree that I, I don't think genres, genre writing in itself is particularly an issue because as Krista said, it lends itself to a lot of things that we want children to learn. I think the issue that often arises from genre writing is these really heavy specific checklists um that children are given with success criteria Uh, and they're like right so for this to be a successful newspaper report you have to have like the five w's and all these different things and and it's laid out so explicitly for them that it it becomes like it can't be transferred elsewhere into their writing which is obviously what what we want to develop my
2: favorite thing about teaching newspaper reports is that you'd somehow it it is of all the genre i think it probably least mirrors how a piece of writing is actually constructed in the real world. Because at no point does one person think of a witty uh, name for the newspaper, think of the headline for the newspaper, write the write the caption for the newspaper. And they certainly don't write their newspaper article out in columns to begin with anyway. <laughs> so it's, a, I think if we could stop newspaper writing If not totally at primary school, because I'm not convinced of its efficacy at primary school, but at least stop getting the kids to do all of that because it really doesn't mirror what happens in the real world.
1: I think there is one bonus to the drawing of columns down a page. It allows children to not write that much and then it looks like they've written a lot because, you know, you divide it into columns and you can only fit like one or two words in a column and then, oh, I'm on to my next line. So... Yeah. The amount of um, time I used to spend on newspaper articles where children would be, this is, this is like old school primary now because it, was often the case where children had finished a piece of writing or at least this was my education you finished a piece of writing and the teacher would then say okay draw a picture to go with it that was just the go-to extension task when you'd finish the piece of writing and newspaper articles do allow for that it's like, oh you've done yeah we've left a little space for you to draw your picture with a caption the only downside to that is when everyone's finished their piece of writing you've got this one kid that's really putting attention to detail into this picture and captioning like okay enough now (laughs) we've that's not really that important we can move on um but yeah it's no it's it's not the best idea but it sounds like we're picking on newspaper articles i think the same thing about other um text types as well is is certainly true yeah i think we're better off thinking about as we've discussed many a time neil audience and purpose if you've got a you, if you, you know who you're writing for and why you're writing and you've got a variety of those um, purposes and audiences across your curriculum, then you're probably doing a good job.
0: Whenever you mentioned text length, Chris, it really got me thinking, you know, having marked many, many six page uh, sort of final pieces. And being 34 years old, when you gave me a copy of Strunk and White's seminal text on how to write. Is that something that children learn to do at secondary school? Or is there any value in us looking at really boiling our writing down to the most efficient it can possibly be? Because I know that that's something I'm aiming for. You know, having read your wonderful book, having been proofread by yourself many, many times, I don't remember being taught that when I was in secondary school. Is is that Should that be the goal of writing
1: education? Well, this is my chance to alienate every secondary English teacher who's listening, but if the writing I've seen from adults generally is anything to go by, I suspect either it isn't taught or it isn't isn't taking. I don't think it's something that should be entirely a secondary school thing. I do think that the elegance of communication is... Something that we can teach from the beginning and then can build up from the beginning. I had a really interesting discussion with John Hutchison about a year or so ago, where I think he made the very valid point that there's an extent to which children do need to express themselves in quite flowery prose to begin with, that that and then you can help them to, you know, rein it in to an extent. That said, I think the idea of teaching children to be effective and elegant communicators is something we should be aspiring to from yeah from the very beginning and i don't think it's something that we're very good at generally as a primary phase i know for most of my career i wasn't most of it i was talking about powerful adjectives and how can you make this sentence longer not not why you should make this sentence longer how, how rarely do we say we do talk to children about impact we do talk to children about well what do you want to get from the reader here but we don't necessarily spend enough time I think teaching elegance teaching the idea of is there a way to say this that more precisely gets your point across I think precision is the word that is missing from primary education when it comes to writing very good at getting children to
2: be expressive not so good at getting them to be precise yeah, and I think that just harkens back to um, I say, certainly drifting away from the main purpose of this uh, episode, but how writing is assessed at the end of um, year six. So I, I would hazard a guess that the child who has the kind of writing that Chris has described versus the child who produces more flowery language, um, it's the child who used the flowery language who would probably perform better um, given the current moderation uh, setup i i might be wrong about that but certainly from my experience of moderation it's always gone to the the child who has written at length and has you know at least tried to use a, a string of three wow words uh, in a sentence yeah i've
1: had the same discussions over and over and over where A child who obviously reads a lot and has an obvious breadth of vocabulary and attempts to apply that in a piece of writing is regarded as being a particularly strong writer, even when their control of tense isn't there, when they have, there's there's a string of sentences and you think, I don't really understand how these sentences particularly relate to each other. They're all seemingly impressive in your vocabulary choices. But again, it, it comes back to precision. The amount of times I've seen tigers described as ginormous or, you know, similes like the, the rocket took off at the speed of a cheetah. It's like, well, no, it, that's, that's, that's a really terrible description of the way that a rocket moves and i can obviously i wouldn't describe it as terrible to a child that might be a bit cruel but at the same time we're asking them to squeeze in similes where a simile isn't necessarily going to to add something for example it's very easy at primary level to end up trying to teach children writing as a set of individually impressive tools as, as if the need to impress is the key thing that we're trying to get them to do rather than to get them to communicate.
3: Inspired by what Chris has just said, I wonder if um, well, just to hear you what you guys think about this, do you think that is a result of teachers teaching how to how to write, getting children to plan a piece of writing, and then just saying, right, here's two hours, go and write six pages. Do you think that we need to move towards a more reductive stance where it's like, Monday, we're just going to look at one paragraph. We're just going to focus on this 10 lines. That's all we're going to do. And then Tuesday, 10 lines. Or do you think that we can still have the go and do an hour of writing independently and it can still be achieved? I definitely
1: think there's room for the have at it approach to writing. And more than room, I think that's a necessity. I think there are so many children that crave that opportunity that to not have it in your curriculum would be a waste that said more often than not when i've asked children to write for quite long periods of time it tails off quite quickly there's kind of 20 minutes 20 30 minutes of really intense concentration when they're really thinking about what they're doing where every sentence feels like it's been crafted and read and then quite quickly particularly with those writers that struggle a little bit more they're, they're spent effectively and there's no, there's nothing more left to give. And yet they carry on writing. You know, they're still go, going on and on. So I think often breaking writing into smaller chunks can be a really effective way to support children's
0: writing. Yeah. Yeah, I reckon as an adult, a thousand words is my limit. And anything after that thousand, you know, might as well not have been written. You know, recent assignments I've written, I've definitely had to go back. Okay, this is my starting point. This is when I hit a thousand. I'm going to keep writing but this time, fresh, because I think you just lose the the focus. I think it, it's a very cognitively demanding process to think about writing in the way that in the way that we're describing. And so, yeah, I think I, I totally agree with you in terms of when I was at school, I used to love having the chance to just write as much as I could. So we should definitely keep it. But I think a balance where we're looking at precision within short paragraphs, like you say, Elliot. I think that's the, that's the the perfect mix.
3: I suppose it it just sort of clarifies for us like how carefully we need to select the writing stimuli because if if it is going to be a stimulus that you want children to go go away and write at length, then it, it needs to be something that actually has that much richness or depth to it that allows them to go and do so.
1: It's also worth noting that, of course, when it comes to writing and what makes quality writing, there is more of an element of the subjective than there is in certain other subjects. So it can be tempting for someone to say, well, that maybe that's just your preference, Chris. And there is definitely an element of that. But, you know, as much as I enjoy authors that have a slightly more spare writing style, it isn't necessarily the case that I can't enjoy and don't enjoy like Dickens or Updike or whoever, people who are, you know, allow- let a sentence run on and on, for example. What I would say though, and maybe this is just me and I'm thinking about the start of my career, I came into teaching with absolutely no idea in my head of what I thought good writing was. And and that's, as I say that as someone who enjoyed reading and has always, to a large extent, enjoyed reading, apart from a bit of a gap in my teen years, I'd never read a book ever really thinking oh, I like how this sentence works in particular and reading it more than once. I read a story because I wanted to enjoy the plot and the characters and the way that it moved me, which is I imagine how a lot of people engage with books. I definitely think that one area of CPD that is overlooked and something I've never really had the chance to do is to actually think about what our own views are when it comes to what makes really good writing. And yet we're in a classroom trying to support children to write well without actually having our own mental model of what it looks like. And this is not saying that teachers necessarily need to be brilliant writers. Of course not. If that were the case, I wouldn't be able to be a teacher. But at the same time, we should really have some kind of sense of what we think good writing is. And I think the only way to do that is to analyze writing. Just on that line, I'm sure I've mentioned it before, Verlin, Klinkenborg's, several short sentences about writing is a masterclass in this, particularly the last 10, 15% of the book, that just looks at individual sentences and paragraphs and explains why they are ineffective. Really, really highly recommend that text for anyone
0: who's who teaches writing effectively, as we every primary teacher does. So then let's get to the heart of the matter then. What would your ideal be? You know, how do we create the conditions
2: for high quality writing? For me, and it kind of goes back to what I said at the beginning um, with regards to kind of sentence level practice. I think a lot of sentence level practice is needed because you get to. I think everyone who's been in year six has still had an issue where there are still a a sizable number of children who still do not use a full stop or uh, a capital letter correctly. And the reason for that, Kieran, as you kind of mentioned is that you know, writing is one of the most complicated, uh, if not the most complicated task cognitively that we ask children to do. And because we ask them to juggle so many um, different aspects of it, we obviously we overload them their, um with their working memories, and so they produce something, but they actually never actually you know, learn something from that. So for me, and it's kind of something that um, my trust kind of working on right now is that we are actually really stripping back the quantity that we're asking children to do um, to ensure that the technical mastery of, the, of those basics and different types of sentence structures are in place. So that when they are asked to do uh, a piece of writing at length um it's our hope that they will have internalized all of those so that they can actually then produce meaningful pieces of writing but even then i'm thinking the expectation that we have on year one for example i think the longest piece of writing we actually want them to write is no more than about five or six sentences by the end of year one that's all we expect them to do but we expect those five or six sentences to be you know pretty much spot on and perfectly and honestly, as you get through to uh, year six we expect them to write more obviously so i think for me how we can ensure that happens is plenty of writing at the sentence level but also um reading to them a lot i think because they need stuff to be able to write with that. Yes, obviously they can bring their own um, background knowledge from their own experiences into play, but I think we need to give them some, you know, some stuff with which they can write with. And so making sure that they do hear plenty of stories, not just the ones that you may have in your reading canon, but anything that the teacher may feel is worthwhile than, um knowing about, I think, can be... Um, Uh, beneficial so my two kind of principles there are plenty of um, sentence level practice they're not rushing to create you know we don't want year ones or year twos writing two or three page epics when really you know um, when it doesn't really make much sense um, but also giving them plenty of stuff to write about
3: that sort of segues quite nicely into what i thought about when you said this question so Tom Needham, I don't know if, if you're on Twitter, give him a follow. He's a secondary English teacher. He wrote this, this blog that really sort of highlights a great answer to this question, I think, where he talked about deliberate practice, the idea of, of what Neil would have said, bring down things to components. But he referred to it, which I think is a, a better phrase, of restrictive practice, restricting it down just to the core individual components that you want them to be able to understand, to be able to write in, in a bigger piece of writing at the end. So practicing those components and then building up to make the whole. Um, And as Neil said, making those sort of compositional parts of writing second nature so that when it comes to writing at length, it reduces that attentional demand on the learner and they can just do it more freely. I think as general points for creating those conditions for high quality writing, we need to stop assuming that pupils can transfer that knowledge across genre. If you do choose to write based on, on genre. Yeah, we need to spend a lot of time picking apart excellent models and constructing them together and then really take our time and shift slowly from that restrictive practice to the wider application in bigger pieces of writing over time. Um, And as Neil said as well, I think when we start teaching, everyone thinks, oh, you've got to do a piece of writing from Monday to Friday. There's no reason why it can't go from Monday to the following Wednesday. Take your time, break it down into a paragraph at a time. That's how I've always favored teaching it. Um, Restrict it down, show them like, what should this paragraph do? What's the purpose of this paragraph? That's what we need to focus on. I would also add to that
1: that the kind of writing uh, stimuli that all of this stuff relates to should really offer opportunities for children to learn a huge amount about something before they start writing about it. Captain obvious here, so I apologise, but children find it so much easier to write when you are talking about something that they have learned a great deal about so but linked to that is the importance i think of children having the chance to talk so your your initial stimulus for writing however you choose to go about it be it through pictures videos stories etc it has to be something that allows you as a class teacher with the children to generate lots and lots of talk beyond that it also needs to be something that allows you, it has to be a stimulus that allows you to create a, yeah, as you mentioned there earlier, a really high quality model text to support children. Um, I think that's essential. Just, Just something I'd add in there, because a lot of what we've talked about so far with regards to writing stimuli are those that are looking to support high quality outcomes. And that's obviously what we're after a lot of the time. I think it's also worth noting that there are other purposes to writing. It might be that we want children to do a piece of writing as an assessment, effectively. And under those circumstances, we might, the stimulus that we give to children might have a slightly different character to it. We'd still want it ideally to be something about which the children know a great deal. But it's also likely to be a slightly more minimal stimulus as a jumping off point particularly if you think about um, assessment like um no more marking comparative judgment that's something that has a relatively minimal stimulus compared to the sort of thing we are already kind of talked about the other thing i'd add and this cycles back to a discussion we had earlier it has to be something as a writing stimulus that leads into Audience and purpose. It needs to be something where you can go, yeah, I, I see what we can write about that. There's a reason we can write this and we can write it for this particular audience. If your stimulus allows for
0: that, then you're onto a winner, I think. I mean, that, that, that's pretty comprehensive. And we, we set out with the aim of finding seven ways to really generate high quality writing. How have we done, Chris? We've got the idea of making sure that
1: the stimulus for writing or the stimuli, I should say for writing support sentence level outcomes. We talked about the importance of reading as a stimulus that's obviously language rich. A stimulus that leads to a restricted outcome because children are much more able to be creative if you're not giving them something entirely open-ended. A stimulus that allows for excellent models. Opportunities for children to develop a great deal of knowledge through interaction with the stimulus in question, or perhaps including rich experiences, ideally. Opportunities to talk a great deal about the stimulus in question. And finally, variation in what is provided as a stimulus, depending on whether you are talking about generating high quality
0: outcomes, or whether you're using that stimulus for the purposes of assessment. The many ways that this conversation went tonight, I don't think, you know, as usual, this won't be the last time that we come back to writing as something we want to talk about. But I think all this left to do now is say thank you very much for joining me. Thank you, Chris. Always a pleasure. Thank you, Neil. Thank you. Thank you, Elliot. Thank you. And everyone at home, until next time, thanks for listening.
3: It
2: just plays in your head, doesn't it? It,